0: Hi, I'm Wade Irley, and this is Rebuilding the American Dream. In this podcast, we introduce you to thought leaders who are shaping the lives of the next generation to discuss the challenges and innovations influencing higher education, and how we can adapt to give students a strong foundation for their future. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Twyla Baker, president of Nuenta Hidatsa Saknish College in Newtown, North Dakota. Born and raised on the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation in Northwest North Dakota, Dr. Baker is a citizen of the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara Nation and Bush Foundation Native Nation Rebuilder, Cohort 2. Dr. Baker's worldview, through an Indigenous lens, informs nearly everything she does professionally and personally. She spent a lifetime establishing her credibility among her tribal people and with stakeholders, including community members, the state, and the region. Given her strong background and her culture and identity, and the social capital that brings, Dr. Baker accepted the position of President at NHS in 2014, after a brief time serving as interim president. She was previously the project director of the National Resource Center on Native American Aging. She's also the principal investigator for the National Indigenous Elder Justice Initiative, located at the Center for Rural Health at the University of North Dakota School of Medicine. She chose her areas of study with a keen awareness of the lack of researchers in Native communities and the excess of educational, social, and health disparities. Her research has been published on diabetes, cancer, and suicide prevention. She holds a bachelor's of science degree in environmental geology and technology and a master's of science in education general studies and a PhD in teaching and learning research methodologies. Dr. Baker, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Absolutely, it's my honor.
0: So what I didn't include in the background is that you entered college with a basketball scholarship.
1: (laughs) Yes, I did. I think that's that's almost... The only thing that people expected out of me because I'm six foot four. So Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. The 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 whole idea of, you know, just keep going and getting a PhD just kind of probably blew people's minds and stuff. So
0: <laughs> Well isn't that the definition of student athlete? Is what we're supposed to be doing? <laughs> yeah. That's what we're our, supposed to be doing. Yeah, exactly. Right. So yep. how did that transition work for you? How did you go from a, that student athlete to someone with a PhD in research methodology? Tell us that story.
1: Well, I think one of my big role models has always been my dad, as far as his academic journey and and his athletic journey. He was a really well-known athlete in his day. He was a basketball player. He was All-American. And he came up in the 1950s and 1960s, Midwest native dude um, who served in the military, went to college, which even that was kind of unheard of for a a native man. And then he ended up uh, graduating out of Bacon College. And uh, his background was in history. So he was a history teacher for our high school for many, many years. And he was also a basketball coach. And his love of reading, I think, is what stuck with me. I don't remember a time where I didn't grow up without books handy. And a lot of them were his books. Many, many of them were based on our tribe, our tribal nation, or tribal history in general. And he was pretty adamant, along with my mother, that his children know who they are. We needed to know the history that wasn't going to be taught to us in the schools that we were attending. And and I was just lucky enough that... I had access to materials like Wahini, which is a book that was written about Buffalo Bird Woman. He also had, you know, a history of the three affiliated tribes, um, Lewis and Clark journals, Shadrach's journals. He had all types of history books. And um, my own interest reached further into the natural world. And that's how I ended up going into um, environmental science. And um, I ended up with an environmental geology and technology degree. But as fate would have it, my graduate degree ended up being in education, and I ended up working at the Center for Rural Health, in part because I had mentors along the way who helped me. And I happened to have an opportunity open up when I entered graduate school to take on a graduate research assistantship. This was an opportunity that was made available to me because of my background in, in science, in in statistics, in math. So I took that opportunity Um, Some years later, I ended up as the director of the resource center. I refer to myself as the um, Forrest Gump of Indian country. (laughs) I kind of come across things almost like by luck or by chance, you know, or, you know, fortune favors the prepared. I was essentially prepared for a lot of those opportunities. and And I got to take them on because I had so many people helping me along the way. Even to the point of being president of this institution now, I, I um, attribute a lot of that to the opportunities becoming available and really my people believing in me. That's how I ended up in this office. It's, it's been a pretty wild journey. It's been an interesting one and definitely unorthodox. So.
0: so tell me a little bit more about the institution. How many undergraduates do you have? What is the core focus of your administration?
1: Our institution is a small school, we are, we can run anywhere from 300 on down students in an academic year. Of course, it being pandemic, our numbers have um, dropped some though um, we still do the best that we can to provide uh, services for our students and our community. And the, uh, the role of a tribal college in a tribal community is multifold. It's not just to serve as like the academic engine for um, higher education. We are also um, really busy with like community education classes, professional development classes. We make appearances in In a lot of different spaces in um, community life here um, on the reservation and beyond and and in the state as well. I can't think of other um, higher education institutions that necessarily have culture uh, stated or spelled out in their mission statements what tribal colleges do. Uh, One of our charges that we take very seriously is the maintenance and making sure that our our culture is being taught to our young people, making sure that our languages are being propagated and that they're they're surviving. So, so we have very, very different missions, different purposes, and we approach higher education in a way that's different from um, mainstream higher education, which of course, if you know the history of tribal colleges and how we came about, that that makes perfect sense. Tribal colleges have only been around for maybe 50 years, So like literally my college, I'm the first president that is younger than the institution itself.
0: Yeah. You've talked in previous discussions about how the college and the community are really one and the same. Tell me, tell me why that lack of distinction is so important to a tribal college like yours.
1: It's pretty crucial to our colleges because it kind of calls back to the, I don't want to say lack of hierarchies, but the diminishing of hierarchies and access and accessibility of people um, within our communities. And we needed that, we needed that to be able to survive. We had harsh winters here. We were struck by disease, smallpox. Of course, we had all of these other different things that are coming at us in many different directions. And what has maintained us uh, throughout all this time is our strong sense of community and our strong sense of responsibility to each other. I've said many times that I am, a community member who happens to be a college president as opposed to being the other way around. My social capital, for lack of a better phrase, lies within my relationships and where I um, stand in, our, in my community, not just as Dr. Baker, the president of the college, but as Twyla Baker, or a Adawish, daughter of Emerson Baker, daughter of Cerise Baker, you know, a member of a clan, a member, an, an auntie, a sister, you know, a friend, a relative. So those relationships and that type of status is is so crucial in Indian country. And that's really how people kind of recognize each other. I mean, you, even if you're walking yeah. down the street that you'll get asked, um, who's your mom? <laughs> who's your dad? You know. <laughs>
0: That's great. The last two years, with I mean, obviously a pandemic by definition, it's global, right? Mm-hmm. But they've been ex- especially devastating to tribal communities with COVID has. What do you see as your biggest challenge for NHSC moving forward? How can other members of the community support the needs of NHSC and, and other tribal colleges?
1: When the pandemic kind of struck and we were attempting to navigate it, we were having to predict uh, and be basically these uh, um, card readers <laughs> uh, predicting the needs of what our students were going to be going to be needing in their academic journeys. And, and of course, nobody's ever been through anything like this, at least not within uh, remembered history or in digital history, so to speak. So, so our response was very organic. And we've had to kind of carve a path, really, uh, and create something that was completely new. Not just to us, but to, you know, tribal colleges across the country, Co- colleges period across the country were finding themselves having to navigate territory that they had not before. And uh, what was unique for us is the fact that we are rural Um, our access was at, in the past, very limited in terms of like digital access, access to technology, access to Wi-Fi, broadband. And and it's a completely different world now, you know, moving into a space where we are one of the few institutions that have 10G. The turnaround, the response time has been so rapid, but that's not without um, its challenges, of course. One of the biggest challenges that I see on the daily, and I I predict will be one that we have to pay attention to, you know, collectively, is mental health, is the mental health and, you know, sustaining uh, our teams, sustaining uh, our workforce. Um, Because they're not just trying to navigate this in the workplace. They are, of course, trying to navigate it in their homes, in their home life. And, you know, with surging numbers now, we're having to respond pretty much the same as we were a year ago and trying to you know, turn on the dime and trying to get support, trying to find the best way forward for, for our um, team members and for our students as well, and keep everybody safe.
0: So I, I saw that you all recently forgave a million and a half in student debt. How did that come about? On this podcast, we've talked to folks from all kinds of different universities, including large universities who couldn't do that today.
1: We happen to have the resources available to us one thing about tribal colleges is we know how to stretch a buck. We don't want to have to stretch a buck. <laughs> you know this is not something that we necessarily oh yeah, I wish I could you know <laughs> you know spend as little as possible but uh, we were very very blessed. we were very lucky in the fact that our team hustled when the like the CoVID dollars were coming down when the resources were being made available to us, not just from the from like the Department of Education or from the feds but also from my tribe, we hustled. We really kind of worked hard to try to get as many resources as we could possibly take advantage of and qualify for available to to our campus community. And we ended up with a pretty good size, um, kind of a nest egg uh, that we were able to use. we Uh, The first wave of the debt forgiveness was about uh, $250,000, somewhere around that that, um, ballpark Mm -hmm. area that we used to to cover um, the costs for our students that were attending during, you know, at the start of the pandemic on. And then uh, my board of directors, they're my bosses, um, are some pretty progressive thinkers. They were the ones who proposed the idea of, well, why don't we just go the, all the way? Why don't we go the rest of the way? It's one and a half million. We have the resources, we have um, the capability to do this debt forgiveness. Why don't we just do it? And, and I just about broke, da- broke down into tears because this is a new start for a lot of students. It's, it kind of like levels the playing field for a lot of students that they can think again about their academic futures and about what they want to do and, and make some plans. Uh, for some people, $2,000 is a, is a lot of money for some people. $200 is a lot of money. It doesn't matter if you, you know, it doesn't matter what the amount is. If you do not have it, we were able to, you know, be lucky and, uh, and take that action and clear some more roadblocks for some more people.
0: It's such a great story being able to stretch your way into forgiving so much student debt. It's amazing. You were in a recent interview, you said that you want to help continue to build whatever iteration of us is going to be moving into the future. Uh, And so that's what you love about tribal nations, right? That you're always evolving and adapting. And you mentioned a minute ago how important history was and is in, in who you are and who you become. What do you think are the important lessons that you're taking from, you know, the past or the recent past, this experience, others into the future of what NHSC can be?
1: One of the most important things that I carry with me is is my blood legacy and, and the the you know the confidence that um my ancestors believe in what it is that i'm doing and you know they instilled in me my identity they gave me a lot of those tools those teachings those the, the things that i've learned from like my parents and from my elders and from my community members in order to carry that into the future all of those things all of those teachings were in, were intended to provide our people with a solid base for for existing,
0: for just living Mm -hmm. here
1: and for learning how to be a good relative to each other, learning how to take care of each other, learning how to, you know, live in a good way, really kind of declaring to the world that watch out, here we are, we're we're here in spite of everyone's best efforts. (laughs) I'm still here, you know, and and not only that, I've gone and gotten what I call the weapons of my enemy. (laughs) Uh, and, and that the that uh, is spelled out behind in the letters behind my name, you know, B.S.M.S. Yeah. Ph.D. So now not only um, do I have the you know this precious knowledge that was gifted to me by my elders and by my family members, that body of knowledge, I also have a, can be referred to as an expert in you know Western circles as well. Yeah. So you know uh, I know a lot of Indigenous academics and scholars who who Basically, what we do is we form the tip of the, the spear. Activism doesn't necessarily come and ask you kindly if you want to be an activist. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, I get referred to as being a, an activist when really it's just me wanting my, my people, my family, my children to be able to live, to be yeah. able to live the way that they want to to feel accepted, to feel uh, all of those, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, not only that, but to be able to express joy and express ourselves uh, the way that we want to. Like, that's what I mean by the modern um, iteration of what we are, because we are defining what indigeneity is every single day, every every day that we live.
0: You know, I, I love what you said. One of the scriptures of my own faith tradition that I love the most is that men are that they might have joy, and we should all be entitled to as much. Right?
1: absolutely. Absolutely. Um,
0: so this podcast is uh, is about rebuilding the American dream, and mm-hmm. I'm interested to you what the American dream means to you with such a a, a different view on what probably yep. America is right and its <laughs> exactly. relationship with indigenous and tribal folks so so what what does the American dream really mean to you
1: so so the American dream of course has different meanings to different people. My definition of that might be somewhat embattled (laughs) just based on who I am and where I come from, because a lot of that American dream, so to speak, was overlaying over the top of how we were living as as tribal people. I've said in the past that I am um, more loyal to the land than any flag that flies above it. That doesn't necessarily mean that I am. I don't believe in the good parts. What I want... And, and I would say, I suppose my definition of an American dream is to allow um, Native Americans <laughs> to dream that the, the way that they would want to and to live the way that we would want to and to express ourselves, practice the way we live, pray, uh, love, all of those things loudly from the mountaintops, you know, and, and to have the freedom to do that and to have the the space to do that and to have that sharing of cultures and an appreciation and an understanding of everything that is around us and an appreciation and understanding of the knowledge, these millennia old bodies of knowledge to share, because I truly believe that Indigenous people have so much to share and to teach to other cultures. We also have so much to learn. We have so much to learn ourselves. So, so that, that to me is, is the American dream. If I am also able to function within our capitalistic structures as well, if I'm able to support my kids, then, hey, you know, that's practical. That's absolutely practical. We believe in practical. We were, we're trading tribes. Like I said, every day we are defining and redefining what it is to be Indigenous in a, a colonial society.
0: So given that framework... And with, with the tribal background, what what advice do you generally give to young people on the reservation or, or other tribal folks who are contemplating college and their futures more generally?
1: You know, one of the most shocking things that I remember when I was um, younger and about to attend college was one of my friends. He mentioned that he didn't know if he could attend college. He, he didn't, you know, have that belief In himself, And it was a shock to me, a shock to my system, because for me, when I was growing up, it was not an if I'll go to college, it was a when I go to college from my parents and from my, you know, support network. I want to make sure that for those young people that are coming up and for whom college is right, that they know that they have everything within them already that they need in order to succeed. They just need to tap into it. They have the talent, they have the ability, they have the, you know, the energy, uh, and they have the grit to be able to get through it. And um, really, I want to be a resource. I, I myself and the team that I've built here, not just on my campus, but, you know, across the state, across our networks, that they have someone who's cheering for them, that they have someone who believes in them. And, and sometimes that's the only thing that, that makes the world of a difference. For, for these students is, is knowing that there's somebody that has been down that road and that you know they can do it too dr
0: baker i have learned so much from you in the last i don't know 20 minutes half hour <laughs> it's been a real pleasure and i i'm so grateful that you took the time with us
1: absolutely um, it's it's been my pleasure
0: you've been listening to me wade irely of degree insurance this is rebuilding the american dream Find out more on our website, AmericanDream.fm, or follow us on Twitter at Degree Insurance. Until next time, goodbye.